All right. Well, that service went by really quickly. I was enjoying it. Got too much into it, and then I realized it's time to preach. So uh, I think in the new year, we're going to try to get some times with me on Sunday nights when we can get together and just sing together. And uh, hopefully that would be a blessing uh, for you all. Um, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. By the way, if you've never experienced a worship service at Colonial in the front of the church, you don't know what you're missing. Um, I invite you to come on near the front in the first few rows. You're going to have to fight me for my seat. Uh, but, man, I'm just encouraged every week to hear you sing. When you, when you were singing, uh, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Man, I was just so encouraged to hear you sing that with joy. And to be able to hear the congregation uh, with one voice exalting the God who was able to forgive all of our sins through Jesus. So I invite you to come on and join us. Now, don't do it right now, but um, I invite you to come in the front and join us as we and hear that and be encouraged in that way. My heart's been encouraged uh, to see a new wave of families and individuals who are interested in joining in along with us at Colonial. Uh, to me, it's, it's inexplainable by our efforts and because of our sinful imperfections as a church, but this is God's doing and we take that as a significant stewardship opportunity to think about how uh, some new families who are coming or some new individuals can be a part of our church and, and use their gifts in our assembly to try to reach uh, the world around us for the gospel of Christ. Uh, this past week, uh, the hearts of the pastors were really encouraged at, at a meeting on Thursday. We, we meet uh, on Thursdays to pray for the church and to think about spiritual needs in the church and uh, one of the things we have uh, picked up on in the last few weeks, week after week, we, we keep having uh, men uh, want to meet with us uh, to tell us that it's their desire to pursue pastoral ministry. And it's not stopping. This keeps going. It's actually slightly overwhelming. But it's, it's thrilling uh, to see uh, person after person, couple after couple, desire to go into pastoral ministry or to go into missions. Uh, and so I uh, just wanted to convey that to you and ask you to pray about that. Uh, we've got a long list of people who are desiring to do this, and this is God's doing again. It's not. Uh, I haven't initiated any of these things. The pastors aren't initiating these things. This is the Holy Spirit initiating these things. And so we delight in that, too, and ask for your prayers. Of course, one of the ways we're all encouraged uh, together is to consider the Word of God together, and it's my privilege to uh, be able to look with you at Romans. It's been a, a joy to look at the first half of the book with you, Romans 1 through 8. And as we uh, turn forward in our Bibles to Romans 9, I'm not oblivious to the fact that uh, most people in churches avoid preaching and teaching on Romans 9 through 11, because of the controversial nature of the chapter and because of how difficult and challenging there are. As a matter of fact, I heard about a pastor who actually recommended preaching Romans 1 through 8 and then skipping 9 through 11, going through 12 through 14. Um, and I don't know what reasons he had for that. I wasn't listening. So, <laughs> um, so we're going to look at these chapters together, and it's going to be uh, hopefully... Um, challenging, but also encouraging and strengthening to our walk with the Lord. 
I, I wonder how many of you have ever heard preaching through Romans 9 through 11. Now, if you've been in this church, I'm sure Pastor Daniel before me preached on it, but it would have been years ago. I know we're kind of in a transient culture here, so I, I just wonder how many of you have ever heard preaching and teaching through Romans 9 through 11. Uh, and so it will be our privilege and joy to do this. Having said that, I know the chapters aren't quite challenging. Matter of fact, one uh, New Testament uh, writer, author, who's well known for his views on the book of Romans, said everything about Romans 9 through 11 is controversial. In another place, he explains that many people give up in the middle chapters of this book, Romans 9 through 11, because he says they see uh, Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning, four of application at the end, and three of puzzle in the middle. Okay, now, um, by God's good grace, our family's really into puzzles right now. Um, at least some of us in the family are. Over Christmas break, we, we, we got a new table, so we were doing puzzles around the table. And it was fun for me to see uh, our different children, uh, uh, even the differences among twins, uh, in how they respond to puzzles. Some people love them, others barely tolerate it. Now, I'm not going to say much more about our family, but you could ask Levi if you have any questions. He doesn't mind getting into trouble. Um, but uh, just to see the differences, uh, to put together a puzzle, of course, uh, requires much patience and perseverance and skill. Well, Romans 9 through 11 is like a 10,000-piece puzzle. You need wisdom and patience and perseverance, and most importantly, you need spiritual illumination. You need the Spirit to open your eyes to behold and understand these things. So if it being so difficult, you might ask the question, why? Why should I even care? Why should I even try? Pastor, if you're saying it's so hard, why should I tune in the next several months? Well, first, it's in the Bible. Enough said, right? But I'm going to give you another one. I'll remind you what our founding pastor used to say. Pastor Keith, he says, if you get Romans right, you get the whole Bible right. And I think the point of the statement that he was making about this book, and perhaps even these chapters, Romans 9 through 11, is that these chapters contain some of the most significant theological matters found anywhere in the Bible that affect the rest of Scripture. Uh, and so, um, as we look into this, we're going to do it a bit differently uh, than we have before, okay? At least in recent sermons, okay? So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm actually, I've taken two sermons and, uh, and I've boiled them into one, okay? Now, don't get too nervous. I've tried to streamline it a bit. What we're going to do at the beginning is I'm just going to take some time to uh, overview the whole section. It's going to be very quick. I'm just going to remind you the big pieces that are here. And we're going to do that because this is a big book, and it'll take a, a big set of chapters. It'll take us a long time to work through it. Uh, the way I've got it worked out, it's going to be 16 Sundays, 16 sermons uh, through the book. So please be praying about that. But we're going to look at the different parts. We're going to overview it. And then... We're going to consider briefly this morning Paul's reasons and goals for writing Romans 9 through 11 before we look at the first five verses. 
of Romans chapter 9. So that's my goal. I want to do all of that. And uh, so we're going to start by reminding you of the significant uh, blessed chapters of Romans 9 through 11. So you ready? Right, at least nod your head or something. We're ready. I heard it, at least one yes. What are these chapters about? Okay, well, if you could answer that question in different ways, right? What are Romans 9 through 11 about? You could answer it in long sentences. Let's try one word. Okay, the one word is found near the beginning of Romans 9, verse 4, where Paul begins, they are Israelites. So the one word answer for what's Romans 9 through 11 about, it's, it's about Israel. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, you might remember that Paul gives a thesis for the whole letter. He says that the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So Romans 9 through 11, these chapters explain to us more what Paul means when he says that the gospel came to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. He's kind of filling that out. I had the privilege of uh, surviving a Ph.D. program in Australia. And in that program, I was introduced to all kinds of different biblical scholars. Uh, one man's name was Mike Bird, Michael Bird. And if you've ever met him, you would never forget him. He's a short little Australian with red hair. He's, he's got a funny wit. He's sarcastic. He likes to make fun of people. Matter of fact, you know he likes you when he's making fun of you. At least that's what I kept telling myself. <laughs> he also has a commentary in Romans. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he says you could summarize it this way. It's about Israel in the past, Romans 9, Israel in the present, Romans 10, and Israel in the future, Romans 11. And I think that's mainly right. Mainly. And what an important time to consider a subject like this, right? I was just thinking there have historically been only a handful of times when perhaps it could have been more important for us to think about God's chosen people, the Israelites, in a proper way. Today they experience much hostility and animosity, not only from Hamas, but also all around the world and, and even in our own country. Yet these chapters make it clear that the nation of Israel retains a special place in God's heart, so much so that one day he will send a deliverer out of heaven to rescue or deliver them, as we'll see. So in God's good plan for our church, we're going to be spending time for the next four months thinking about Israel and uh, God's working and plans with them and how the nations are involved as well. As we think of Romans 9 through 11, near the beginning of these chapters, Paul begins by saying that the problem of Israel's rejection is not with, Israel, or is not with God. Look at uh, 9.6. This is where I'm just going to just remind you of a little pieces here. 9.6. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, so the problem is not God. The problem is with Israel and its and her disobedience. He then explains in the next part of that verse that not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And to make more sense out of these things, uh, the Apostle Paul keeps using illustrations about God's children from the Old Testament. He uses the illustration of Isaac and Ishmael. Remember this, Isaac and Ishmael. And then he turns to Jacob and Esau, who I heard one preacher say today they were womb mates. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Jacob and Esau, to show that not all descendants of Abraham and not all descendants of Isaac were actually a part of God's people. That leads Paul to ask a very common question for him in Romans verse 14, 9, 14, what shall we say then? And he, he asks that question, is there injustice, injustice on God's part? Again, he's, he's dealing with the question, Israel's been rejected, they're, they're sinful, and, and it doesn't seem that God's fulfilling promises to them, it's the problem with God. His answer comes immediately following, and it's basically this, no problem, or I'm sorry, no, no way, the problem rests with God, or with, with Israel, not with God. That leads Paul into a deeper discussion. As you're looking in Romans chapter 9, you see uh, that Paul talks about God as having the right to, to demonstrate mercy and compassion on whomever he wills. That's his right as the creator God. He then considers that God can do what he wants with, and he describes vessels. He uses another metaphor. He talks about vessels fitted for wrath and vessels of mercy. Remember these parts of Romans 9 through 11? You remember? You probably have some big questions about some of these things, like when he says about Jacob, he says, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Does that leave you with any questions? Yeah. Paul's talking about God and his rights to have mercy and compassion on whomever he wants. To this, Paul brings in a host of Old Testament passages in Romans 9 through 11, so that a third of Paul's citations of the Old Testament are found in these three chapters. You'll see it over and over and over again. It keeps bringing the Old Testament to bear and tell us what it means regarding God's right as a sovereign creator to do whatever he wants. And he, he uses illustrations like the potter and clay illustration. Remember this? If you've been reading through Romans 9 through 11 in preparation, he uses the illustration of the potter and the clay. He says, doesn't the potter have a right to do with the clay whatever he desires? To that explanation, he adds another illustration, that of the olive tree, right, in Romans 11. Olive tree that has natural branches, Israel, broken off, and a wild olive shoot grafted in the nations. To explain how things are standing in the present. But he doesn't end there, and at the end of Romans 11, uh, he says that one day in the future, Romans 11.26, and you can see this right in your Bibles, Romans 11.26 Right at the middle of the verse, he says that one day the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. For Israel. He's, he's talking about the future. He says one day a deliverer will come down out of Zion and deliver the people. And this will be the time when he takes away their sins. 11 verse 27. This is a time in the future when all Israel will be saved. We'll talk more about that when we get there, you know, in however many months it takes. In other words, one of the things we'll see in Romans 9 through 11 is that God is not done with the people of Israel. 
and will one day do something for them that's never been done before. They will, each one of them, turn to the Lord to be delivered and saved. And of course, you remember how Romans 9 through 11 ends, right? One of the most powerful doxologies that's ever been written. Like it's, it's like all of this is too much for Paul. Even Paul the Apostle is overwhelmed as he's writing this through the uh, illumination of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit, and he, he concludes with this. He says, oh, the depths, oh, the depths of the, wisdom, of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He says, how unsearchable, and then he says, how inscrutable, and then he, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Well, that's just a brief reminder to show you some of the things we're looking at. Now, there is one other thing I want to do before we look at Romans 9, 1 through 5, and, and that is to answer the question, why? Why are these chapters here? Why are they here? And in, in your notes, if you're taking notes, there's a gray shaded box on the front. Yes, we're still in the front of the handout, sorry. Okay, but as you look at the, the front, why are Romans 9 through 11 here? Why are these chapters here? Um, have you ever asked why something was somewhere before? Perhaps a road in the middle of nowhere, like what in the world is it doing? Or for me, I'm like a church building somewhere in a bad location. Why would you put a church there? Or a few months ago in the golf course, God, why did you put this pond right here? <laughs> of all the places. Why Romans 9 through 11? Why is it here? What motivated Paul to write these things? I want to just give you three reasons to think about before we look at 9, 1 through 5. First is what I call a personal reason. Paul's personal reason. Paul devotes the beginning of each chapter, Romans 9, 10, and 11, to declare his own love for the Israelite people. But don't just trust me on that. Look in your Bible. Look at Romans 9, 1. Romans 9, 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And we'll keep reading later. Paul loves the Israelite people and he wants the reader to know that. Romans 10, 1, look at that verse. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's the Israelite people, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness they have a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Look at Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Beginning part of each one of these chapters, Paul makes it quite clear to the reader that he has a, a personal love and affection for the Israelite people. I think that's one of the reasons why he writes this. The author James Dunn said, uh, he said, Paul himself was conscious that his position was open to misunderstanding. So, Paul wants to make it abundantly clear to any reader in these chapters that he is not happy at all that so many Jewish people were rejecting the gospel that he was preaching. Paul's not unattached when he says, says these things. On the contrary, the present rejection of so many Israelites was tearing him to pieces. He was struggling to deal with it. 
And so one of the reasons he writes is to defend his own love for the Jew, Jewish people. Now, that leads to a theological reason. Paul not only wants to defend his own love for Israel, he writes these chapters to defend God's love for them. And I think the theological reason uh, presented before you uh, on the slide behind me is closer to the heart of the chapters and explains why they're where they're at in the book. Okay, now as we talk about God's great love or deep love for the Israelite people, I want to talk about it in two ways that I, I think will help us here. The first way to describe God's love for the, his people, Israel, would be this way. Although Israel had rejected Jesus, God's continuing love for them can be seen in the miraculous future day when the deliverer will come from Zion to deliver the nation. I said before, as we are just overviewing the book, just very briefly, it says God's not done with Israel, the people of Israel. There's a future for Israel. They remain his chosen people. And Paul's, so Paul declares uh, God's love for the Israelite people on, in every chapter of Romans 9 through 11. Now, this theological reason is not just something we then tune out as Gentile believers, the nations. Okay, there's a very significant reason why we should be concerned about God's love for the Israelite people. Okay, and it's, and it's not just our concern for them, but our concern for us. If you remember how the last part of Romans 8 ended, um, uh, I, I, I just want to show you why I think Paul might go into 9, 10, and 11. Uh, last week we looked at Romans 8. And we looked at verses 31 through 39. And I summarized all the questions that Paul asked there with uh, saying he considers who could oppose us, who could accuse us, who could condemn us, and he then asked who could separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And do you remember what Paul's answer is? Briefly stated, what's the answer? No one. Nothing. Good, you, you got something last week. And so at the end of Romans 8, Gentile believers might be thoroughly and utterly convinced of God's unfailing, unbreakable love for them. Nothing can detach us from God's love. But... An alert reader of Paul's letter to the Romans might ask a very important question here, and that would be, what about Israel? Didn't God love Israel before the church? Didn't he articulate his love for them as well? And see how this follows. If God's promises and commitment to Israel have not come to fruition, and if they've been replaced, how can one be sure that the great promises of Romans 8 will hold true for us as well? See that? Now, let me use an illustration in case you can't figure You remember when you were a child. Now, I'm an only child, so I have to use my imagination on this. But you remember when you were a child... One day your mother came into your room and she brought you a whole host of things from your older brother or sister. It was a great day. All these new, well, slightly used clothes. 
Right? You got an entirely new wardrobe. It's a great day. Your mother came and brought all those things from her. You enjoy that day. But a few days later, that very same mother, she came into your room and she went through your drawers and she started taking away all your stuff to give to your little brother or sister. Not so good then, right? Well, you see my point. At the heart of these chapters is a very important defense of God's character and his love. If God doesn't come through and fulfill his promises to Israel, then people will question his integrity. So technically what you have in Romans 9 through 11 is you have a formal description, you have a theodicy. You have a vindication of God. Paul vindicates God and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his love and his ability to fulfill promises that he made to his people Israel. That's the theological reason. One more. The doctrinal reason. And not to say that these others weren't doctrinal. I just needed another way to describe it to you. The doctrinal reason. Paul is not only... uh, wants to defend the genuineness of God's love for Israel, he also wants to declare the universal sovereignty of God over all things. He wants to declare the sovereignty of God over all things, all nature, all beings, all times, all events in world and in salvation history. And so when you read through Romans 9 through 11, you're going to be struck with the theology of God and in particular, his absolute sovereignty over all things as creator. He's Lord over it all. Ask any believer, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? You know what answer you normally get? Yes. I mean, like, who wants to be the believer who says, I don't believe in the sovereignty of God? But if you keep asking questions, and you dig just a little bit further than that, you, you find that many times we place so many caveats and qualifications on his sovereignty that not much is left. So Paul addresses that, that in these chapters, he addresses the sovereignty of God. And he does so by building off what the Old Testament said about Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Israel and giving illustrations like the potter and the clay. He's defending God's sovereignty and lordship over the entire created universe. Okay, now, having laid those foundations down, I want to dig into the beginning. So, uh, go back to Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, and we're just going to look at the first two sentences Uh, Verses 1 through 5, the introduction. I noted uh, this this week, for the first time, the word amen at the end of verse 5. And I noticed that it occurs again in chapter 11 at the very end of the conclusion. Amen. 11.36. So Paul marks out the introduction and the conclusion with the word amen. Um, Now, in this introduction, verses 1 through 5, uh, um, Paul is not just setting up everything with preliminary and background information, but he's filling these verses with his sincere and strong feelings and descriptions of his sacrificial love 
for the Israelite people. So as we pay attention to the first five verses here, what we're going to be struck with is what true love for others looks like. Uh, Paul wants his readers to have no doubts about his deep commitments that he feels toward unbelieving fellow Jews. And I think it's to our advantage that he describes it so graphically here because God can use it, I think, in our lives, and it's been my prayer that he will use it in our lives to teach us more about the sort of love we need to cultivate for lost people around us. Now, in Romans 9 through 5, I said that there are two sentences, so I have two points. The first point is in verses 1 and 2, Paul's sincerity and strong feelings are seen there. Look, look in your Bible at verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. In verse 1, I think we see three statements about his sincerity, and then he gets a little bit of a description of what's actually going on inside. Now, the very first word in the original kind of hangs out all by itself. It's the word truth. So as you transition from Romans 8 to 9, the word he leads with is truth. He's going to tell you something that is true. And it can be verified. Right? And the truth he wants you to consider is his deep love and affection for the people. Paul starts by calling the Romans to consider the truth about his own sincere love for the Israelite people. And, and so Paul makes a threefold statement with multiple witnesses that he's writing the truth. He first says that he's speaking the truth in Christ. He says he's functioning in his union with Jesus. This is a way of saying he's not speaking independently when he's writing Romans 9, 1 and 2 about all these feelings and affections he has for the Israelite people. No, it's Christ is with him testifying to this. I'm speaking the truth. Uh, in Christ. He adds to this the testimony of conscience. You know what the conscience is, right? The internal component of our being that monitors our conformity and actions, our conformity to moral standards. If you study the scriptures, of course, you know that the conscience is fallible. It can be wrong, it can be off, it can be uninformed, it can be wrong. But that's not the point Paul's making here with conscience. Here he speaks of the positive value of a clear conscience. You see, Paul's conscience was monitoring his thoughts and actions and, and reporting the truth of what he's saying back to himself. As a matter of fact, if you look closely, Paul adds something even to the testimony of his conscience. He had something important at the end of verse 1. Right? I, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. And here it is. In the Holy Spirit. So Paul says his conscience, and what his conscience is saying about his love for the Jewish people, is, uh, one commentator said, certified by, another, informed by the Holy Spirit of God. You see, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to the deep affections that Paul has for the Israelite people. 
And so what follows in this passage, you can be assured these are genuine feelings that the apostle has regarding the Israelite people. He's, he's genuine. He's telling the truth. Which, by the way, uh, just to stop and make an application, just very briefly, I think he's describing the value of having a good or clear conscience regarding the nature of our actions. We might not be able to say it as powerfully and as as pointedly as Paul that the Holy Spirit joins with the testimony of his conscience, because he's writing scripture, but what's your conscience testify regarding your actions? This week. Paul brings it to the stand, though, his conscience. He brings his union with Christ of speaking the truth. He brings the Holy Spirit to the stand to testify. And that's when Paul reveals what he feels in his heart. Verse 2. He says that he feels great sorrow. That's deep, intense sadness. He's not just saying these things. He experiences regularly, normally, deep, intense sadness of soul. And then he adds to it, an unceasing anguish. That's unrelenting pain for the Israelite people. So Paul's not just being impersonal in Romans 9-11. through He's just not giving a philosophy of history. This is meaningful to him. And this is something that affects him greatly and deeply. And that's when we just keep reading into the second sentence, verses 3 through 5, to find Paul's sacrificial love. For what reason is he experiencing all this deep anguish, this unrelenting pain? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Uh, Now I'm going to say, I might need to come back to some of this next week. We'll see. The reason for Paul's unrelenting pain is that Paul's desires go so far that he would cut himself off from Christ, if he could, for his kinsmen, the Israelite people, so that they could be saved. And so for any person who critiques the apostle and says he's abandoned or he's reneged upon his own people, they need to think again. Now, the language here is very important. I want to point out a few things about verses 3 through 5. First, Paul doesn't actually think he can do this. He said, I could wish. I think that's a good translation. Paul's imagining here. It's like he's on the brink of a precipice that would drop into hell. He says, if I could, I would step off and I would go into hell so that the Israelite people would be delivered. But he knows that as a sinful person, there's no way he can be a substitute for the sins of the people of Israel. That will require someone sinless. 
Second, I should point out that Paul's language here is very similar to two other people that I found in my Bible. Now, unfortunately, for sake of time, we won't be able to look at both of these. What led Paul to say something like this? I wish that I could cut myself off from Christ for you. I wish that I could become a curse, anathema, for you. I think first he might have Moses in mind. And many of the commentators point this out. You could write down this reference, Exodus 32, verses 31 through 35. At one particular point when Israel had sinned with the golden calf, Moses is interceding, pleading for the Lord to deliver them. He says, he starts off by saying, for the sake of your own name, what will the nations think about you, God, if you wipe out your people completely? And near the end of that chapter, in Exodus 32, 31 through 35, Moses offers up himself as a punishment, as a, a person, as a substitute to, to take the, the punishment for the people. Now, God does not take him up on that offer. But I think Paul might have Moses in mind. He's, he's thinking, he's reasoning like Moses. He's got the same sort of affection and care for the people of Israel. But of course, who's the other person you think you might have in mind? Can you say it out loud? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, that's the right answer always when I ask. Jesus. Jesus. You could write down Galatians 3.13 and let me read it for you. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You could also write down 2 Corinthians 5.21 that describes how Jesus became a curse for us so that we would be saved. See, Paul's love is patterned after the love of Jesus for sinners. But of course, Paul could not act as a substitute for them. He's a sinner. But his desire is strong regardless. If he could, he would die and suffer eternal wrath in the place of the people of Israel. Now, after demonstrating that in verse, verses, verse 3, he lists out eight blessings of the people. They've experienced these things. Adoption. They, God's made them sons. They've experienced the glory, which I think is a description of the presence of God in the Old Testament, his glorious presence. They've experienced the covenants. Remember, they have all of these things. They, they have the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic and the Davidic and the New Covenant. They've, they've been given the law. They've been given worship. Special worship in the tabernacle and temple and the sacrifices and the, the whole system. They have the advantage of having the promises. The promises to Abraham and David and other promises like that. And to them belong the patriarchs. He says, uh, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, men like that, have those advantages. But, but then he ends with one, right? Of them, the Israelite people, is also the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, now, there's a lot of controversy here about the end of verse 5. And perhaps I can say a little bit more about it next week. But the controversy is, is all of these Final descriptions in verse 5, are they all about the Messiah? And uh, from my study, I, I think it is true and right to see all three of these things, that He is over all. He is God. 
and he is blessed forever. Amen. I think that makes the most sense out of Paul's burden here. I mean, just think again what he's doing. He's burdened for the Israelite people. He's experiencing deep anguish. And finally, he, this anguish is such because they've rejected a divine Messiah. How could they reject a Christ who is God over all and is blessed forever? This was a bitter pill for the Apostle Paul to take. He possessed a deep, genuine love for his own lost people. As we close, there is an application that we need to fill very strongly. I've been praying we would fill all week. What about us? What about us? Who do you love like Paul loves here? My mind immediately thank, uh, began thinking about two people in our assembly who decided to leave their house. They've done this just recently. And they traveled across the world to put them in a very dangerous position so that they might minister the gospel to the Jewish people. Think of Mac and Jenny Powers. I think that their heart and desire might mirror a little bit of Paul's But I ask you this question, do you have people that you care about in this way? I wish we had more of Paul's spirit as a church. Do you feel anguish for the lost? Even for your own families, your own flesh and blood. Do you feel anguish unrelenting pain in your heart for them. Like me, perhaps many of you don't have much family in this area. But are they completely out of your mind? Do you care about them? Do you believe that they're damned Because of their sin? Do you have unrelenting pain and concern for them? Now, I know some of you do. I've talked with some of you about this in your great love and care and concern for your children. There's one particular man I think of every time I ask him for prayer requests, he always mentions his son. Every time. And as a pastor, I've wrestled with, what do I do? He seems to be in so much pain regarding this, so much anguish, is, is, is so, such a thing in his heart. And there were times when I wanted to make him feel better. But then I thought, he's more like Paul than I am. He's more like Paul than I am, who experienced unrelenting, unceasing pain of soul for his lost family. Let's cry out to God to to cultivate a love for our own families and our own nation and a special people Israel in our hearts today. Let's pray together.
Father, you know that it's been my simple goal with the last half of this sermon for our sorrow to increase. That we would leave here different under a lasting concern for our families and our fellow citizens who do not know Jesus. And so, Father, I ask you one more time, as I've been asking this week, press this down upon us so that we could speak, so that we could speak of our own heart's desire, our own conscience testimony, our own deep and unrelenting burden for the lost. Father, give us this deep sadness and then turn it into zeal that communicates the good news to others. And use it, we pray, all in the power and in the name of Jesus. Amen.